Good morning, everyone. If you weren't able to join us last night, we had a wonderful night. Um, it was such a good night of fellowship and fun. Um, I just can't be thankful enough for everyone who contributed to that. It was such a success and I was really on a spiritual high. Hannah said, you're buzzing when I came home last night. So yeah, it's a, it gives you a buzz, doesn't it? Lesson number four and the final lesson for our series on peace for busy people. And this lesson we've titled Finding Peace. So far through our series, we've looked at how busyness is such a trap, such a trap for Christians to fall into lifestyles where um, we're running around like, like my mum said, with, um, with chooks with their heads cut off. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, a farming phrase. My mum always used to say that whenever we were busy. That describes the life of a lot of us today, how busyness overruns our, our um, what should be peaceful lives, what should be lives that, that are measured out and, and that we're doing the things that we want to do. And yet we're stressed and we're busy and, and this often interferes with our spiritual walk. It often interferes with our Christian duties. And over the last few weeks, we've just looked at how can we reorganise our life? How can I try to switch things around in such a way that I can find that peace that I ought to have? How can I make sure that I'm serving God and not serving my schedule? How can I make sure that I am becoming a disciple of Christ and not a disciple of the world's philosophies of, of achievements and busyness and stress? So last week we looked at how peace, that word shalom or irani, it comes to mean completeness or fullness when all of the parts are fitting together in your life. And we looked at how as, as Christians, we know we need Jesus. We know that you can't fit the pieces together without Jesus. But then even when you become a Christian, even when you're baptised into Christ, it's not a magic pill. It, it doesn't suddenly organise your life and fit everything together. We still have to do the, the work of trying to put things together. And God has given us his peace toolkit. He's given us prayer. He's given us Bible study. He's given us our fellowship with our brethren. And these things are to bring peace to Christians. And yet in, in all of this... Who found complete and ultimate peace this past week? I mean, I've given you three lessons now. You should really be getting there. But we see that, you know, our lives aren't completely peaceful. We don't suddenly find peace um, magically one day. Even though we try really hard, even though we're given the, the tips and the tricks by the Creator Himself on how to find peace, we turn on the news and we see conflict we go to work and there's conflicts there. Maybe even in your home, maybe in your, in your marriage, there's some unrest. Maybe your relationship with your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews or uncles and aunts. Maybe there's still conflict in your life and, and you just can't seem to get rid of it. And, and maybe these lessons might be a little bit offensive to you. Me thinking, oh, you just need to do this and this and this and finally you've got peace. It's that easy. And you're thinking, Daniel, I... You don't understand my life. You don't understand that things are tough for me. I still feel really fatigued and exhausted. I've got this health battle that I'm struggling with and I can't get over. Or I've got this, this difficult relation, relationship in my life that's causing me conflict. 
And I can't just pray my way out of that relationship. I can't just read my Bible and suddenly find miraculous peace here. The Bible acknowledges that. The Bible is a book of peace and yet there are so, me- so much conflict, so many wars, so much disturbance in the Bible. And when you read through, it's not a, it's not a book that, that's just about lullabies and people floating on clouds. It's a book of real pain and agony. It's a book of people who are upset and distressed and live really difficult lives and people who are searching for peace and not finding it. Even the, the Prince of Peace himself, Jesus Christ, was his life entirely peaceful? Absolutely not. He's crucified on a cross, to say the very least, betrayed by his friends. He had horrific relationships. He had horrific pain and distress. It says that he sweat drops of blood. He was in such distress. The Bible acknowledges that that even though we strive for peace and even though we can find glimpses of peace, that we will still have problems. That's why Jesus, when he offers peace to his disciples, he clarifies it with this and he says, in the world you will have trouble. He doesn't say, have my peace and you'll have no trouble. He says, have my peace to get you through that trouble. Look at what Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, turn with me there. And we're going to read verses 17 to 21. Romans 12, verses 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What do all of these verses assume? They assume that you're going to have hardships in your life. They assume that there will be times where you'll be facing enemies. They assume that there will be challenges where you will have to pursue as far as is possible with you, peace. But underlying all of this is the comfort of scripture to say, just because you do all of these things and you try your absolute hardest to find this peace, there will still be conflict. And it may not be your fault but you may still have to deal with the consequences of it. So, will we ever find peace? Or is peace just an illusion? Is it a pipe dream that we need to just be realistic about? You're thinking, are you kidding? We did a four-lesson four series on, on peace and now you're saying we can't even get it? <laughs> Talk about empty promises. Well, the Bible answers these questions and the Bible presents this current age as a time where peace is something we pursue, peace is something we aspire to. But it doesn't stop there, does it? The Bible presents an age to come where peace becomes a reality. And so that's what I want to focus our attention on this morning. The Bible paints two pictures for us. These pictures are are beautiful illustrations of what we can expect in the life to come. And it grounds them in, in events in history and it says those events in history, if you, if you paint a different picture with them, 
That's a good illustration of what's to come and what's awaiting you and I if we're faithful to God. So I want to spend this lesson just painting those pictures for us and illustrating what it looks like, that peace that we are so eagerly looking forward to in that life to come. And if you're going through hard times, if you're going through those health troubles and you just can't find peace, if you're going through maybe the difficulties of, of old age and your body is, is wearing out or not functioning like it used to, if you're going through a, a challenging relationship, if, you, if you're going through marriage problems or, or family conflicts, whatever conflict you're going through at work or at school or, or at church, wherever it is, this is the peace that is guaranteed. This is the peace that we anchor our hope in. This is the peace that, as the author of Hebrews says, we strive to enter this rest that is offered to us, the rest that is to come. So there are two pictures that are painted. The first one is this. It's the garden. Earlier in this series, I talked about how one of the best definitions of peace and one of the best ways of visualising peace is to go into nature. Every time you see nature, every time you find yourself in nature, you find yourself very acquainted with peace. You feel like peace really comes into you in a way that you you just can't explain. Um, This is why people leave the city. This is why people go and have a tree change or they have a sea change. They, They try and get away from the buildings, away from the concrete and back to nature because they know that it does something for them. It's not a new phenomenon to realize that nature does something to you. Um, Aristotle said, in all things of nature, there is something of the marvelous. In all things of nature, when you consider nature around you, there's something to marvel at. There's something to, to really stop and make you think and, and it just it accesses a deeper part of you. The Taoist monks uh, 2,000 years ago, they have a lot of literature on how to achieve peace and how to find peace within your soul. And one of their number one solutions is that you need to take up gardening. If you're not a gardener, you have to become a gardener. You have to grow plants and let them... Let them grow, let them um, come up and, and pick the fruit or the vegetables and that kind of thing. Because they, they were cluing into something there. They knew nature is, is this peace that, that we need to try and access. Um, this isn't just a psychological phenomenon either. It's empirically verified. If you go and ask neuroscientists what happens when you take yourself out of concrete and out of the houses and out of the cities and go into nature, neuroscientists verify with study after study after study that nature improves your ability to concentrate. It improves your ability for problem solving. In, a, um, in an article in National Geographic that was titled, This is Your Brain on Nature, um, they say it improves problem solving, your attention span, your ability to relax and de-stress. In fact, they did a study one time. They got a lot of people to do a, a bunch of really stressful maths problems. Um, so I'm sure there are a few kids in the room who can relate to that this time of year. They got them to do this, this incredibly hard maths test and it was really stressful and they didn't have enough time. And then afterwards they measured all of these different ways that the people could relax. So some of them they got to read a book and other people they got to use their phone. And Some people, and this was the most effective method, they showed them a TV and they showed them shots of nature. They showed them one of those David Attenborough documentaries. And that was the most effective way. They, their heartbeat reduced and they were able to find calm the quickest when they were just shown pictures of nature. So it does something special for us. But you don't need scientific studies 
to tell you that. Um, the end of this article concluded, the author said, at the end of the day, we come to nature not because science says it does something to us, but because of how it makes us feel. Nature just does something special to us. So it's interesting to see that the Bible starts with a garden. The first uh, two pages of your Bible depicts a garden scene. So open up to Genesis chapter 2. And let's read about that garden scene. Genesis 2, and we'll read verses 7 through 15. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden uh, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The, f- the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this is man's original dwelling place. God takes man. He doesn't put him in a, in a skyscraper. He doesn't put him in you know, flats. He puts him in a garden to start off with. And he says there, there, there are a few really beautiful things to describe this garden. Oftentimes when you read verses 10 through verse 14, you get a bit confused. Why is he talking about the gold there being good and, and delium and onyx? I don't even know what these things are. Why do we need to know about these things? What the author of Genesis is, is trying to convey to us is that this was a really good place to live. It was a place that you could cultivate, you could dig and find precious stones. You could find things that were productive for a good lifestyle. It wasn't a desert. It wasn't barren. It was filled with great resources and it was a wonderful place for man to live. So, the Bible starts with a garden. It also ends with a garden. So, let's go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. This is a beautiful way to tie Scripture together. It's an arc that goes from page 1 to the last page, whatever that is, 1,561 in my Bible. It ties the first chapter of the Bible and the last chapter of the Bible together and shows you what all of the middle section is going to be about. It goes like this in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign 
forever and ever. This passage is saturated with language and images from Genesis 1 and 2. If you, if you sit them side by side and compare all of the words, John, who's writing Revelation here, he's just pulling out of Genesis 1 and 2 and he's pulling all of those same phrases and he's putting them in what we expect after we die. He uses phrases like the tree of life, the river of the water of life. No longer will there be any curse. What happens in Genesis 3? The curse comes and and that curse is not going to be there anymore. And finally he ends with, they will reign forever and ever. And you remember back at the garden, God said that man would have dominion over the animals and the birds and such. That word dominion and the word reign there is the same word that John's using. He's pulling that out and saying God's going to re-establish that dominion, that reigning. He's going to re-establish all of these things from the garden. He's going to create that garden Garden of Eden 2.0, and you're all invited. Look at um, verse 17 with me. Chapter 22 and verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's an invitation back into the garden. In Genesis, you see the garden closed off. You see the cherubim put in place to keep man out of the garden and we come to the end of scripture and God says, now come back. We've fixed it. We've solved sin. There's no longer any problem that's keeping us apart. Come back and enjoy the garden that you were meant to. And if you're going through hardships, if you're going through stages in your life where you can't find peace, God is there saying, just, just hold on in there. Just, just stick it out. Because you've got a garden waiting for you. You might have missed out on the first garden, but make sure you don't miss out on that second one. Make sure that you experience that peace that comes from being in God's perfectly curated garden where you and I will reign forever and ever. And I think you and I can manage hardships in our life when we keep our eyes firmly fixed on that garden. I think that no matter what conflict you're going through, It can be conquered. It can be endured if we set our eyes firmly on the garden that God has prepared for us. And he says in uh, verse 6 there in Revelation 22, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The, the, The angel there is conveying here, Don't doubt this. Don't don't get mixed up as if this is some kind of fantasy that's prepared for you after death. These words are trustworthy and true. You can guarantee it. The creator of the universe has it guaranteed for you. If you will remain faithful, the garden, that peace, that eternal bliss is there waiting for you. Just hold on in there and reach it. The second thing that God prepares for us, the second painting that is, is uh, made of what we are to expect is not a garden, but it's actually kind of the opposite. It's a city, specifically the city of Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in the world. Uh, we know it from at least the 14th century BC. Um, there are some letters that were sent by Canaanites. Uh, They were living in the area before the Israelites came into the land of Canaan. And they sent letters to Egypt to try and ask Egypt for help with some some people who were coming in and raiding the cities and stuff like that. And so they talk about this place that's called Jerusalem. It's a city that was at least known from 1400 years before Christ. 
It was named, we think, according to the best of our historians, um, after one of the Canaanite gods, Shalim. And he was the god of mornings or the god of beginnings or the god of dawn or of sunset. So if you're a morning person, this isn't the god for you. You want his brother Shalah. He's the god of evenings and sunsets. So the Israelites, when they came into the land after a couple of hundred years, through King David, they conquered Jerusalem and they established that as the holy city, the city where the temple was to be established, the city where where God's presence was said to be. They didn't continue calling it after the Canaanite God, but rather they liked to think of Jerusalem as if it was Jerusalem. They called it the city of peace instead. And it was meant to be a peaceful city because God dwelt there and his people dwelt there. And so they should dwell in peace together. But of course, if you know anything about Jerusalem, it's about the most war-torn city in all of history. There are fewer cities that have faced more battles. Jerusalem has been destroyed at least twice, besieged 23 times, captured and recaptured 44 times and attacked up to 52 times. Throughout history, this has not been a city of peace like it was planned to be. So, God promises peace to that city, though. You read through the prophets and it doesn't take you too long before God starts promising that in the future there will be a different kind of Jerusalem. It won't be a Jerusalem that knows war. It won't be a Jerusalem that's constantly besieged and attacked. It's going to be a Jerusalem that will be at peace. Turn with me to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. And we're going to read verses 11 through 14. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Remember what we read this morning, if you were here for our Bible class, on, on comfort and how God promises comfort. And he's saying here, this is to people who are not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, and it shall not come near you. This is a depiction of the future of Jerusalem. The Jews came to call it New Jerusalem the new Jerusalem that would be established. And they were expecting that Jesus, when he came, when the Christ came, would throw out all of the Romans and he would destroy them and and cause this physical battle to establish Jerusalem as it was. But of course, Jesus wasn't coming to do that. He was coming to do something much better. He was coming to establish the heavenly Jerusalem that we see. If you read through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48, those last nine chapters there, are all about the measurements of this new Jerusalem and the new temple that's going to be in it. They look forward to this perfect um, city that was going to be established. And when you read Ezekiel, you can tell that he's, he's metaphorically talking about the perfection of Jerusalem in the latter days. We go forward in Isaiah to Isaiah 65 and, and look at what Isaiah says about um, the New Jerusalem in these some of the last verses um, in his large book 
Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 19. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And he goes on. This is the Jerusalem that they were anticipating. A city of peace, a city of perfect peace that was held in peace by God himself. Now, turn with me to the New Testament. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. You've got to tie all these verses together because they they paint this picture. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 through 10. And it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He wasn't looking for another man-made city. He wasn't looking for another city of war. He was looking for a city that was created by God. And then look at what it says in verses 13 through 16. These, all of these faithful people died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is... They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He's saying all of these people that you look at in the past and say they're great heroes of faith. The reason they were great heroes of faith was because they didn't put their confidences in any earthly place. They didn't put their confidence in their location or their current geography, in their house or in their current city. They put their trust in the city that was to come, the city with foundations. They looked forward to that city that they were waiting for after they had died. And then in the final chapter, in Hebrews 13, this is where the direction becomes personal for you and I. Hebrews 13, verses 13 and 14. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, that's Christ, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, does that describe you? Does that describe your walk of faith? Are you fully resting your hopes and desires on the city that is to come? That new Jerusalem, that city of perfect peace. Philippians 3 and verse 20 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of that city. If only we can hold on and remember that we can get through these times of conflict and trial. We can endure through these hardships. We can make it to that city of peace that God has prepared. God knows your pain. He knows your emotional fatigue. He knows just how overwhelmed you feel. He knows you're exhausted and he knows that you're desperate for peace. And he's promised you that perfect peace. 
And he's pleading with you and begging that you become a citizen of that city of peace. He's pleading with you and, and, and begging that you will come to the garden, come to the city, come to that place of ultimate rest. Again, the Hebrew writer says, let us strive to enter that rest. Don't give up. Don't stop trying. Peace is on the horizon. It is there. We just have to keep enduring through this life, through God's strength, through the help of our brethren, through patience and endurance. Let's get to that city. I don't know about you, but when I travel, when Hannah and I go travelling somewhere, we love coming home. We really love driving up the range. And when we see that sign that says, Welcome to Toowoomba, I just relax. I feel really comfortable. I love travelling. I love visiting my family and her family and going on holidays and everything. That's really lovely. But I love coming home. When we drive into our street, when it says Handley Street, ah, home, Handley Street. When we drive into our driveway and I press that remote and we go straight in, I'm home. I love that feeling. That's one of my favourite feelings. I feel like sometimes driving out of Toowoomba just to drive back and get that feeling. It's so nice. I cannot imagine how good it's going to feel on that day when I come into my home, the heavenly Jerusalem that God has prepared for me. I cannot imagine the comfort and peace in my heart when God welcomes me to that city that I'm a citizen of. To that city that I'm looking forward to. And he says, welcome home. You're here to stay. The place of peace and the place of rest. The place where there is no night. The place where there are no tears. The place where God and his peace and you and I reign forever and ever. I want to finish with a poem. This is one of my favourite poems. I don't know whether you're going to be around at my funeral, but I reckon this poem is going to be read at my funeral. I, I, just, I talk about it all the time. I read it all the time. It's by a guy by the name of Paul David Tripp, and it's called Rest. And it goes like this. Rest, a faint dream for many, a treasured commodity in a fallen world, a thing so needed yet so easily interrupted. The garden was a place of rest. No violence in creation, no weed or thorn, no cleft between God and man, no reason to hide, no cause for fear, no need unmet, no grief to face. Bright sun, pure love, unfettered peace, unstained beauty, man and God, worship and love. But a voice interrupted the rest. Strategies of death, words of deceit, actions of rebellion, fingers of blame, expulsion from the garden. Judgment and death, rest interrupted, rest shattered. So we wait for the Lord, his grace strengthens, his presence comforts, his promises assure, his power activates and his rule guarantees that someday rest, real rest, pure rest, eternal rest will reign once more. No violence in creation, no weed or thorn, no cleft between God and man, no reason to hide, no cause for fear, no need unmet, no grief to face. Yes, true, yes, rest, true rest will live again and last forever. So we wait for the Lord to restore us to that place. Bright sun, pure love, unfettered peace, unstained beauty, God and man, together forever until that day 
with hearts that are strong and hope that is undimmed and joy that embraces the future, we wait for the Lord. And that's how busy people find peace.